0: after uh it took us about a half hour to get skype to work because they've updated the application 450 times but that's another podcast No, or maybe it's this podcast let's see
1: (laughs) good yeah we should talk before they take away my uh, all my authentication and we end up in silence that's true i
0: think we've only got like five minutes before microsoft realizes (laughs) pushes an update So Rich, yes, Paul. I guess about a year ago, a very nice British gentleman came to the office and said, I am learning to code and I'm writing about it. And I want to talk to you a little bit about what's going on. And that was a very, it was an hour well spent. I like talking to this person. Turns out, so wait, just to understand the
2: framing, a non-programmer. This wasn't a college student. No, deciding this is they wanted this is an adult.
0: This is an experienced okay. person who's been around for a while. Who said, "I want to, I want to reboot, and I want to figure out where to go, and I want to, I want to write about it and talk about it." And it, it turns out that this is a a well-known, widely regarded writer named Andrew Smith. Okay. Who's uh, written a number of books? We'll put the links in. So, he, as I've gotten to know him, is on, he's both uh, someone who really reports and studies and tries to understand technology, but has also really gone in deep to become a practitioner and figure out what that means in 2019. Okay. Uh, And now he has a job? Well, I think we should talk to him. Okay. Let's rope him in. Wait, is he here? I am. Let's give people a little bit of background here. You are a journalist
1: yeah so that I mean start at the beginning, I started out and you know, I played in bands and stuff like that when I was in my twenties, and then I started I went back to my first love, which was writing and wrote in the British music press, which was immense fun in those days. it was great, moved to the face, and all that kind of stuff threw up through the national press. I mean, these were
0: some of the great publications in the world at that time
1: yeah there was I was lucky I was in the right place at the right time for those things, and then I could sort of see, as I suspect you could, in the early 2000s, you could see that things were changing, the internet had happened, and there wasn't the kind of money around in the publications, or there wasn't going to be, to do the sort of heavily research things that I like to do. So then I switched and went to books, and I wrote, my first book was about the guys who walked on the moon.
0: So now, from there, you went on to do a lot of research and write quite a bit about internet culture.
1: Yeah, it was funny. There's um, there's a guy called uh, Doug, Douglas Rushkoff who's a New York sort of um, sure. lecture legend writer. And I remember I interviewed him for my the the last book that just come out. And I remember it sitting in a in a diner uptown with him, and we just looked at each other and went, you know, we both started out writing about music and popular culture and and just uh, you know general about stuff in our lives. We both ended up writing about technology and finance. And I thought that was really interesting because it it's in, in when we'd started out, the exciting places to be were those ones that we started out in. Whereas at this point, you cannot understand anything about the world without really understanding, I think, finance, high finance and technology. It's sort of, these are the things that define our lives right now.
2: So now you've gone in. You're one of them. Yeah.
1: But you're one of us.
2: <laughs> one of us. Welcome. Welcome to The Fold.
1: I'm not quite there. I want to be one of you. Yeah. Put it that way. I'm not I'm not I'm not quite one of you yet. So why
0: go in? I mean that's no. help us get from the moon yeah. to the early internet and its self-destructive tendency is to well, wanting I'm, to learn to code.
1: Do you know you know they started at the same in the same point? This is one of the things that I I found um that was most interesting. That that in actual fact, the internet and the space program, the you know of the 60s and 70s the the exciting space program have their origins in the same thing which was Sputnik went up in 1957 and Soviet the technology of the Soviet Union seemed way ahead of American technology there was real panic and uh, uh, there were politicians out there who were saying oh my god the Soviet Union has the ability to just drop bombs on us from space now this is terrible Now, all the scientists said there's no advantage of that. You might just as well launch it from the ground, just drop it from space. It's not, there's no no need for that. But there was a real panic going on. And Eisenhower, who I have come to believe is the most interesting president of the 20th century, a Republican, but he loved scientists and kept most of the New Deal policies as well. He had his generals, uh, who he didn't trust, being a general himself, that's extraordinary, but it was true. And they were trying to take control of space and science, and he did not want that to happen. So what he did, he took out, he took space and science, and he put them in the hands of civilians. So he created ARPA, and he created NASA. And in that moment, but, you know, NASA went and made the space program, and ARPA went and made the internet 10 years later in 69, the same year, in fact, that the first moon landing happened.
0: So this is is Eisenhower's distrust for his... Military,
1: yeah. In fact, the internet—they tried to. Op- we're gonna. It was the ARPANET, of course, in in '69, and a few years later they went. Well, okay, we've got it up and running now. Let's privatize it, and they tried to sell it to telecommunications companies or give it actually to telecoms companies, and uh, and they all just looked at it. I think AT and T was the best way. who kind of debated it for six months, and they just came back and went, "No, we really don't see much future for this thing. <laughs> I have to, you have to keep it."
0: But to them, it probably looked like you know. Telegraphy, like I mean, you're never gonna. Who's gonna have a computer? Right. They've yeah. they've already got a wonderful switching network that they can use to connect people via voice and hear each other's voices. Yeah. True. Why? Why yeah. these horrible big bulky machines? Yeah.
1: Actually, given our experience with Skype, I can kind of see where they're coming from. <laughs> can't you? Well, <laughs> this is the
0: thing. I mean, actually, you know, the technology is increasingly making technology uh,
1: communication worse. It it actually is, isn't yeah. it? I know it's a really odd thing. Then it's not never straightforward anymore.
0: Now you used to pick up a phone and you would call another person, and it sounded really good.
2: It, yeah, you yeah. hear
0: every word. You could speak back and forth yeah. at the same time.
2: The and, audio conference call is still under threat to this day. It's still not there. Yeah, Video, yeah. I, I'll give them a pass because I get to see you, and I couldn't see you ten years ago or twenty years ago. So that's true. I'm okay Truth. with the with the burden there. But the fact that we've taken three steps back on the on on the conference call is really amazing it's a, it's the running joke in tech like even right. even in like sophisticated tech shops like ours, we still fumble through the call yeah
1: well it's there's something interesting about that you know and telling too because the the chief difference is that it's free now pretty much yeah. And one of the one of the choices we've made as a society, it seems to me, over the last 20 years, without ever really making it a choice, it just sort of happened. And we've encouraged it because people have put free stuff in front of us, which isn't as good as the stuff we were paying for. And we could have carried on paying for the old stuff, but we didn't because the free stuff is just you naturally gravitate towards it. So in a lot of ways, the technology has done fantastic things for us and, and has given us all kinds of gifts. Some of which we're not even aware of anymore. We just take them for granted. But one of the things I think it has done that we would probably we do well to start thinking a little bit more about is that we've gone for free stuff, which is inferior and makes our lives harder and probably costs us more money in the end.
2: Oh, I mean.
0: But I like free stuff. Free stuff. Yeah.
2: Well,
1: who doesn't? Who
0: doesn't? No, you yeah. know, it's terrible. So I pay for a lot of things now because it's just easier. And I think I've been on the other side of trying to get people to pay for things. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to subscribe to this here newspaper and not think about it anymore. But my dad, the moments of pride when he's able to shove through the paywall and just be like, I'm not giving him a penny. Yeah. It's, it becomes a game. Like I'm not doing it. And then there's another thing going on where it's like, I don't really want to subscribe to that magazine. I just want to read this one article. And then they're like, well, you know, you have two left. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Tell us a little bit about your more recent book, Around the Internet, and then let's talk about how you became a coder. What What is this book, though? Uh,
1: the, the sort of end point of the book, it's about the dot-com crash. Mm-hmm. In 2000, basically Web 1.0, the first iteration of the web. And this
0: is totally wired. We should tell people the title of
1: this. This is totally yeah. wired. It's cool. Yeah. It's And it's um, a mysterious thing because the story at the time was that all these kids who were running the dot-coms it, through the second half of the 1990s, chiefly because they were the only ones who understood the internet. And there weren't very many of them, even the young ones who did at that point. The narrative has been that they went to their heads, they got stupid, they started spending all this money on air on office chairs and first class travel. And they just tanked the whole sector. This turns out to be really not true. This is not what happened at all. That did go on. But that doesn't account for the fact that basically an entire industry just disappeared in the space of a few months so it's about that and it's about that wild first phase of the web where no one knew what it was going to be from between about 1995 and 2000 1995 being the point at which Netscape went public and the money started to to really come in and people were setting up companies and it's about this extraordinary period it was a likened to the 1960s, a lot of the time, the second half of the 1960s, in that there were no rules, everyone was making it up, you could try things, and people would let you. And there was in this instance, there was investment money pouring in, mostly from people who didn't really understand what the internet was. So that it meant you could you could take it and you could run with it. And so the books about these kids who basically found themselves in that position, because they'd arrived in New York, and there was a massive recession on in the first part of the 90s. So they were all kind of working in bars, doing ramp poetry, playing bands, you know, those sorts of things. And they all gradually discovered the, the Internet and the web when it when it arrived. And so they thought it was interesting. The joke was this is going to be bigger than CB radio. Right. And then suddenly the Netscape IPO happened and billions of dollars just poured in because everyone wanted a piece of this. It was clearly going to be you know, the future. And they were there once you knew how it worked. So all of a sudden, people were just handing them money and saying, just do something. We don't even care what it is. Just do it.
0: You know what's fascinating, too? When you look at the lists of the big early sites and it's some of these players, right? It's Den and Sudo and and these very young, creative, very full of themselves. I remember it. Young people. But the, the prototypes that they were putting down were the things that later became the multi 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 billion dollar businesses like it was video experiences i mean you can see like the the dna of netflix youtube all the different mail services you know all those all those sort of like those experiences that now are starting i mean you know as we're recording there was just a huge apple event where they're talking about how they're going to become a more and more of a content and storytelling company and it yeah, that universe was really well predicted by the early, uh, by the mid '90s.
2: Well, I think people didn't give a shit, right? They like, you know what? Here we are. The world is this. The world is ours, and everybody overshot. Everybody's like, of course you're well, going to watch you, a movie
0: on your phone. You assume well, there was no phone.
2: I know, but they're still they, saying it. They're walking around <laughs> saying, "Well, it's going to change. The whole game's changed." It's
0: funny what you can't predict because they predicted accurately that like people will watch stuff on on you know you, digitally. Yeah. But they couldn't predict how long it would take for high bandwidth. Oh,
2: do you know what I no. think about sometimes? That was a Alone.
0: What do you think about? <laughs> a
2: real player.
0: Mm. Okay, so yeah. well, West Coast—that's a West Coast thing. No,
2: but still, Real Player just yeah. kept trudging along. It's like, but this is coming. We got <laughs> it, this. Remember when you yeah. get that
0: Real Player video too, and it'd be like six pixels, and it'd be like, <laughs> "Oh, cool, <a> Sarah McLachlan <laughs> song," you know?
2: And they worked so hard on like downsampling, as if your connection wasn't as good. I mean. It was, yeah. it was really trying to, cause they, they saw it and they, what they saw was real. It was a real
0: thing. So why, why yeah. did it implode though? I mean, it's not just bandwidth. Like what?
1: Well, there's a bunch of things that the book focuses on this guy called Josh Harris, who was a really fascinating character and had a six story warehouse at sort of Broadway and Houston. And, uh, which turns out to be a block away from where I was born. In fact, in Bleecker street. And, um, and he was trying to they were trying to make one of the, vid, you know, video TV radio portals, which was amazing because, of course, TV had such high costs associated to it. Whereas if you were online, you could have 30 channels, it cost you almost nothing to make. So it was it was radical. And they did see all of this coming. Broadband took much longer, I think, than most people thought. Yeah. But the reason it fell apart. Was not really to do with the young people doing it. When I when I dug down, because it was a mystery to me, it, I couldn't see why, you know, the the things the things that the the kids running the companies were doing, I couldn't see how that added up to just destroying this whole sector. I mean, it's trillions of dollars that was wiped up from the economy at that point. Except that as Douglas Rushkoff pointed out, money is never wiped away. Someone sells on the way, you know, someone has sold stuff on the way down. So the money just goes somewhere else. But essentially, the investment bankers used the dot coms much as they would use subprime mortgages later on. They use them as investment vehicle when a company went public uh, and most of the young people running the companies really didn't understand the IPO process at that point. But in 1999, there were hundreds of IPOs. You know, we get excited about there being four a year now. Yeah. But there were. I remember that it was hun- wild because
0: the tombstones would show yeah. up, the little picture, the little uh, announcements, and there were yeah. so many.
1: Yeah. Sure. That's right. That's right. And these were companies in the, in the past. It was expected that a company would, would have a certain number of time, amount of time. I can't remember it was a couple of years of profits. I think it might have been three years worth of profits or something. It was there was, a, there was a process that went. And at this point, people were forming companies, and six months later, they were being taken public. It was kind of mystifying, right? And what was happening was that the investment bankers who were organizing the IPOs were just slinging these things at market. Uh, there was a pattern to the ipos that year too which is that they would start with a low price say 17 dollars a share there would be this huge demand and often the the opening of trading would be delayed and then through the first day the price would just escalate so it might end up with 90 dollars a share right and then it would come down again and then the company would be stuck with this massive valuation it would mean that they could never borrow money again because Anyone who was thinking of investing would look and go, well, that share prices yeah. look so high yeah. and that valuation is so high. We can't, we can't invest more. What was happening was the investment bankers were giving shares at the low opening price to friends and family and, uh, and to favored clients. And they were agreeing this process called laddering where they were agreeing to buy and sell amongst themselves through the afternoon. And so it would, the price would be driven up and up and up and up. Eventually, the public would get to pile in. So they'd all pile in at the higher level, in which case all the insiders would get out. And so the public would end up losing money. It ended up there was a big overhang because, of course, the people who worked for companies, the friends and family of the people who worked for the companies, there was a thing called a lock-in, which I think, I assume there still is, where you couldn't sell your your own shares for about six months. Mm -hmm. Now, the investment bankers and their favorite clients could. They could sell on the same day. But if you worked for the company, you couldn't. And there ended up at the beginning of 2000 being this massive overhang where there were a whole lot of shares which were suddenly going to be available to be sold coming out at the same time, by which time most of the insiders had got out. And then, of course, the the market crashed. So there was a transference of money from the public through their Pension funds, mutual funds, and, and investments to the finance industry of trillions of dollars. It's a scandal that I cannot believe hasn't been more widely publicized.
0: Right, because the thing you're the thing you're describing is stealing.
1: No, it's le- that was perfectly legal. <sighs> there was a there was, um, there was a class action case afterwards, which went on for years, as these things do. And the bank's case was not we didn't do this. The bank's case was we did, but it's not legal. And in the end, there was a settlement into around about 2008 because it looked like some of the banks were going to go down. So the plaintiffs did settle for a paltry amount, and most of the money came out of the dot coms. And guess what? It went into real estate. Sure. So there you have the subprime mortgage. Yeah. Basically, it was a dry run for the subprime mortgage crisis, which happened in 2008.
2: What's the next? What's the next crisis, Andrew?
1: The next one. Yeah. Oh God! I mean, who knows? I don't even know what they're doing now.
0: <laughs> it's not tech. <laughs> tech is over. Parts of tech are overvalued. I don't think so. No, no, I think
1: tech's been
2: done. Tech's been done. I
0: think the raw speculative energy around blockchain is sort of seg- segmented off from the rest of the economy. Yeah, yeah. that's its own island. Great. It's always real estate. Yeah, it's so big. Real estate, yeah. you know. Yeah. But wait, hold on, Matt. So you you saw that people went to the moon and became sad, or or had yeah. unusual experiences. You saw yeah. that the tech industry was utterly vulnerable to every kind of manipulation, and then you thought to yourself, and then they became sad. <laughs> they became sad. <laughs> you and you, then you thought to yourself, I should really learn how to code. Yeah, I'm, make me sad. Yeah, yeah. he's seeking out <laughs> sadness again. What was the What was the motivator I, there?
1: Yeah. Well, the the, the motivator there was uh, kind of like most of the things I do, I guess, and it's curiosity, isn't mm-hmm. it? And what, what I tend to be looking at, if I'm, if I'm looking around the world and there's something that I think I don't understand. So in 2008, one of, the thing, one of my motivations for Totally Wired was because I looked at the stock market and I thought, this makes no sense. I cannot see how this makes sense. And then I looked at it a bit deeper and still thought, that doesn't make sense. And then I looked at it a bit deeper and saw, actually, no one else seems to understand this either. So clearly something's going to happen here. And with code, it's the same thing. I mean, there's almost nothing we do now that isn't mediated by code. As you guys know, I didn't tell you, but it turns out to be such a fascinating world, which, like most members of the public, I really didn't understand anything about. Hmm. And, you know, just to be able to... I remember the first time I was able to just look at a line of code and understand what's going on. It was so exciting. It was like being able to play a line on the guitar for the first time or a song. You're
0: seeing what makes the machine run. I mean, it's a hell of a thing.
1: Yeah. My own interest stemmed actually from something I wrote when Bitcoin, you know, was just beginning to make waves amongst the people who followed these things and knew about them, but it was still very, very much a cult. And, I thought that looks fascinating and did in, in the end, managed to persuade someone to let me, um, write an article about it. And one of the things that it was about was of course, who is this Satoshi Nakamoto mm. character. And when I was looking at the evidence, the, there wasn't much evidence, but there was a lot of code and I was talking to, uh, programmers saying, well, you know, here, we've got all this code. Is there anything we can learn from this? And they all started talk, discussing it like literature. And I thought that was so interesting, and the language he used and why, you know, he, she, they, we don't know still. Why would you use different languages? How, how are they different? What are, you know, all the, all the things that someone said, they thought it was in C++ and someone said, but we don't think he's a native to C++. It doesn't write. And the way that the, way that the code is written suggests that maybe he learned in the 1980s, so not, not not really young. And I just thought that was fascinating.
0: Well, that's going to trigger all the journalist part of your brain, right? I mean, it's just sort of, especially as a writer, as a thinker. So, so wait a minute now, a year ago, you know, or or thereabouts, I talked to you and you were really figuring it out as you went, you were, you were early days, maybe some Python, not sure about language. I I think I told you like, you know, figure out how to build a website, figure out how to build something. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Where'd you end up? Where are you now? Well, what? I'd made some forays at that point into JavaScript, and when I when I first saw mm. you the first time, I saw you, and um, I didn't love JavaScript, and and so that I realised after a while that the aesthetics of it does sort of matter to me. It probably shouldn't, but it does. And I ended up with Python, which in fact I think you initially suggested Python, and I ignored you. I'm sure. <laughs> I can't remember why. I think it was because the I'd got into my head that if I was going to try, you know, web development, then JavaScript would be the thing. We
0: run a company. I'm very used to being ignored.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But what I realized was once I, once I'd kind of crashed out of uh, JavaScript or decided that maybe that wasn't for me, I, I realized as I was doing that, that almost all the experienced programmers and developers that I'd spoken to had been gently trying to steer me. No one said, because no one ever does say, um which I think is kind of nice actually. No one ever says you must learn this. They just you you'd all been trying to sort of steer me towards Python. And yeah. the moment I tried it, I really liked it. I I love Python. I went to my first PyCon last year and just adored it. It was like going to Woodstock for me. It's
0: a very sweet, positive community for the most part. I, I call it a, a very
2: empathetic language. It just it 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 doesn't throw that hurdle in the beginning that that makes you it, like you got to climb over this first and then you can get going. Like it wants you to get going. I think that's, what's interesting. Yeah.
1: That. It feels like that. You're right. And, um, I, I've often wondered if it was because, um, you know, Guido is, is, is Dutch and it's just <laughs> right. it kind of seems quite Dutch to me about that language. It's not, not language for showing off in, is it? No, it's, no, no. It's,
0: in fact, they're, they're very, it's been very, it, new features and exciting new things don't land in Python very often because mm-hmm. you're supposed mm-hmm. to be as explicit and obvious as you can in your coding. Style.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. But there's right. some very sophisticated stuff in Python.
0: No, you can do all the real work in it. Yeah. It's just not like, yeah, it's intended as a communication tool as well as a programming language.
1: Yeah. Which is probably what appealed about it. And I, I love the community. I, it's I unusual.
0: I, you know, a lot of the listeners won't know this, but like the languages have their own worlds and their own cultures around them. And sure.
1: Oh God! Yeah, yeah.
0: Like Python is 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 very tries to be friendly. Like like it's anything. It's a bunch of nerds, including me. So people can be prickly. So Andrew, what what are you doing now? Are we going to hire you? Should we should we hire yeah. you now? Are you ready to come work? Where do you see yourself in two years?
1: <laughs> I could I can make um, a really good cup of tea if that if that helps. <laughs> I am I'm seriously I'm still very much a beginner, and uh, it, one of the things I I really liked is it's forced me to understand. My own computer, my own machine a lot better, how everything's structured, where it goes. I can use the terminal now and I know how to find things that I've lost and I know how to how it's organized and how to organize it better to make it little things like that, which you I think partly because the manufacturers and software developers are all trying to make it as easy for us lay people, you know, civilians as possible we a lot of the time we don't really ever need to learn to use something really well, so we use it really badly mm-hmm. and I think until you until you start learning a little bit about code, it's hard to motivate yourself to to make that little step
2: you know we we've got a lot of listeners on here that aren't programmers, designers, right. product managers, business people business and what's interesting about you know the the world of programming is there are it, it the demand is so high. And other industries um, or other sectors aren't, you know, as attractive. People pivot. People pivot in their twenties, and their thirties. Um, yeah, uh, sure. I have a friend who's an architect, and it's a really steep hill, and the upside isn't that great. So he's exploring, actually changing jobs entirely, changing professions effectively. Uh huh. Based on what you, you know, dipping your toe into this, and I'm sure you hit some walls. What what advice would you give someone who's thinking about taking that leap? Because it's a scary leap, right? I mean, you did it for research and well, and, and
0: also you're... I think as a humanist, you did it to understand the world. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That 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 was a, a part of it, and I sort of think because there's um, a lot of discussions going on at the moment about what our software is going to do, and it. I wanted to be able to understand it well enough to participate in those discussions. Um, so I think that that in itself is important but i'll tell you what was um what i tell people when when they say oh god yeah that um i don't know i'd, I'd like to do that but it, it sounds it sounds too difficult and it and it is difficult i don't want to sugarcoat that to to learn to program is difficult but there are there are simple things you can do that would just give you enough of a sense that you can feel like you understand what it is and how it works and why You know, this line of stuff that looks like algebra, but actually is nothing like algebra in most cases, how that line of stuff makes something happen in the world. And one good way is there's a guy called Quincy Larson who started a thing called Free Code Camp. Mm -hmm. And it's an online resource. And it's and you can go on there and they make it very easy, which has a downside, because then when I remember the first time I had a blank screen and my task was to design a web, a small website. And my mind just went blank, and it was terrifying because I realized that I'd gone through these easy steps of being able to manipulate mm-hmm. <laughs> simple code, <laughs> and suddenly didn't know how to apply it. But if you want to get a sense of it, just go on there.
0: Yeah, the resources out there are amazing. It's worth noting too, like the only laboratory you need is the com- the desktop computer in front <sighs> of you.
2: Everything's out there. It's yeah. everything is there. I mean, you
0: don't need to go buy some special
1: device or, or yeah,
2: it, it, anything, any corner of it. Yeah.
1: I live in uh, in the Bay Area now. and so I, a lot of these conferences and things are quite um, accessible to me. and And some of the some of the organizations that are now trying to recruit uh, developers to do good civic work. there's one called open oakland, which i'm I'm involved with, where we meet every Tuesday in the city hall. And the city kind of says, well, look, this part of our website sucks, or this, wouldn't it be great if we could do this thing about knowing where political contributions were coming from and taking the information, which is all publicly available, but not very easy to read and pass, make that accessible so people can see it. So there's all those things happening. But I went to a thing called DevCon a little while ago, and there was an organization that was recruiting High, very high-end um, developers to, from all over the world for companies who needed them, and I went and said, "Where, where are they coming from at the moment? Where, are, you know, where are you finding them?" And they said, "Djibouti is a big one, and Cambodia is another, wow. Vietnam." Wow. And I thought that was fascinating, and that speaks to what you're saying—that really, if you, as long as you've got access to a computer, mm-hmm. you can do this. So yep. in some ways, it's a very levelizing, you know, democratizing sort of force. In the world. So two books.
0: Totally wired, which is is out, and then um, Moondust, which is coming out in a new edition. And then if you could, if you had infinite time, what's the thing you would program?
1: There seems to be a thing at the moment for making password generators. And um, one of the one of the things I want to do for the website is to have a password generator that I can feed the text from Moondust in so that it'll generate pass passwords from that. So every, you know, every 400th one or something, you might get buzzled in one or something like that, which would be kind of fun.
0: Mm-hmm. 10,000 so this... security researchers just exploded, <laughs> as you said. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: know. I know. This is part of my learning uh, learning curve. And there's something I want to do with music as well. Because well, one thing I'd, I'd, I probably shouldn't tell you this, because someone else might do it, except that we're all open source here, aren't mm-hmm. we? So this... How we work. It's all about but execution, I,
0: Andrew. It's never about the idea.
1: I know, but I'm going to be worse at the execution. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I need to protect the ideas, otherwise, I will have nothing. <laughs> so, well, yeah, what it is is uh, I don't know if you do. You listen to music when you work constantly. What I'd love to do for my own website is to have a, a sort of a page and an app where I could share that, and where other people could share it, and we could all we could all be bringing in the music we like to work to mm-hmm. and with and what works. And then if I could somehow connect with the Spotify API, which must be possible, I couldn't do that now probably without taking me a week. But then we might be able to have a way of sharing it and then sampling it and listening to it. So it could be this little community of people who use music when they work and share it. And I think that would be a lovely thing. And the reason I like that is because I wish someone did that. I wish there was a site that I could go to where that would happen. And there isn't, as far as I know.
2: That's usually the best so reason That's to chase a, an
0: idea. It's a uh, true
2: motivator. When you want the
0: thing, it's the best motivator. Yeah. Well, look, we're here to help. So
1: when... Well, thank you very much. I will very happily take you up on yeah. that.
0: Come, come see um... us. And everyone who's listening needs to go and, and buy some Andrew Smith
1: books. No, you don't need need to. to. I can just tell you what they say. Just send me an email. I'll tell you what they say. You don't
0: need to. Don't. That's that's very British of you. But we're you know (laughs) let's let's sell these (laughs) books. My my
1: publishers just make a note right (laughs) here. Okay, get rid of this guy, Andrew.
0: Thank you for coming on Track Changes.
1: (laughs) It's a total pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you,
0: Andrew. Hey, Rich. Yes. Nice to see people learning new things.
2: Uh, I. It's a dream. If it's I fun, could be right? a novice, there's nothing. I mean, I, would, I love being a novice.
0: It's fun to play. Yeah.
2: In the previous then, episode, we talked about
0: Blender. It was just, you always it was end up there. using it somehow. You use the knowledge somehow. Oh, yeah. It's, great. it's um, great. All right. Well, you know what? If people need us, they know how to get in touch. Hello at postlight.com. Yes. We're hiring and we can be hired. That is correct. <laughs> we are growing this company. So yes. get in touch.
2: Get in touch. That's Hello you. at postlight.com. Have a great week. Let's go.